You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of How to Become a Dictator, a podcast about Chinese leader Xi Jinping. I'm Venetia Rainey, Assistant Foreign Editor at The Telegraph and one of the producers on the podcast. We've been really overwhelmed by all the positive feedback we've had from listeners around the world, so thank you so much for listening and engaging with the show. In this bonus episode of How to Become a Dictator, we're going to explore what the future looks like for Xi's China and the challenges he's facing both at home and abroad. This episode started life as a live Twitter space and I was joined by our podcast writer and host Sophia Yan, China correspondent for The Telegraph, and Roland Oliphant, senior foreign correspondent. So I'm going to start with you, Sophia. I'm going to assume that most of our listeners have heard our podcast, our final episode, which came out last week. Um, And so they know that you've now left China. Where are you based now? And what has life been like for you since you left? So I'm now in Taipei, looking at the mainland from across the ocean. I'm not in China, and I may never go back. I packed everything up in a hurry. So I've been living out of a suitcase. And I have to be honest, I feel much safer here than I did over there. I'm not so tense when I have to say Xi Jinping's name out loud. Obviously, that's something I had to say a lot while making this podcast. Uh, the environment in China has really changed, and it's only likely to get sharper how Beijing acts uh, in, in Xi's third term. There's really been nothing to indicate otherwise, and that means the risks are exponential for someone like me. And picking up and leaving China in under a week was really pretty tough. I have a long list of people I already miss. There are stories I had yet to do and places I never had a chance to visit, and now I may never do it again. I may never be able to go back again. The reality is there was no telling how China would react to this podcast and to all the other stories I've been working on. I mean, how do you cover the dictator of a country when you aren't even allowed to call him a dictator? I mean, trust me, this... The irony of this still gets me, that all the troubles I was having while reporting was due to one man, the one I was trying to cover. So I've followed a long line of foreign journalists now turfed out by the Chinese state. I find it very sad that none of us journalists, dissidents, have been able to leave on our own terms. But Taiwan's great. I have loads of friends and family here, some of whom I haven't seen since before the pandemic. So I'm enjoying this unexpected interlude until the next thing comes. Because something we touch on very briefly in the podcast is that you have a Taiwanese background. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that and how that maybe influenced or didn't your experiences um, in China as a journalist? Well, in the beginning, I, you know, I spent 10 years total between Hong Kong and Beijing. And in the beginning, it was really useful. I blend in, you know, I look like everybody else. I can move around in a way that some of my other foreign journalist colleagues couldn't. So I drew less attention and it was great. You know, I'd never lived in a place where I looked like everybody else. It was such a novelty. (laughs) I remember when I first got on the subway in Hong Kong, I could just reach up and grab the top rail in most metro systems around the world. I'm way too short for that. (laughs) So I finally was in a place, you know, for my people. Uh, I grew up in the U.S., so this was really kind of an interesting experience for me. 
But my family joked a lot about my reverse migrations. Uh, I had co- I have cousins in California who were like, ha you know, going back to Asia. And um, my family also warned me about it. You know, my mom, she, she grew up in Taiwan when Taiwan was still under martial law, governed uh, under a, a single party, military dictatorship. And she had told me that I had no idea what it would be like to live and work in a place where you had to watch everything you said and did. And she was right about that. Things have really taken a turn to be much tighter in China, and it has just become so difficult to be there. Uh, and so that was something that stuck with me. And of course, moms are always right somehow. And so now I think about that a lot, that she she had this foresight to sort of warn me a little bit. So I did always have it in the back of my head, but I was still so curious about China. And one thing I noticed over time was that my identity became a liability. What was before an asset as a journalist, my language skills, the way I looked, over time became a, a huge problem. It became more of why I was at risk. China, under Xi Jinping, has made this claim of, uh, you know, they, they want to claim the entire Chinese diaspora around the world as their own. So they look at me, and I mean, when the government calls me in, for instance, to uh, reprimand me for my reporting. They say things like, oh, you know, you're a traitor, basically. They look at me and they pressure me in a different way. They're like, you should know better. You're just hurting your own people, yada, yada. It doesn't matter how many generations out your family has been from China or even in the greater China sphere. It doesn't matter. They still look at you and they want to put you in that bucket. And that's very dangerous because if they can find a way to say that you are actually Chinese and not a foreigner, then you have even less rights basically almost no rights. Chinese journalists are routinely imprisoned in the mainland. Uh, As an American, I have a little bit more protection, but it's only a matter of time, I think, before they go after someone like me, an ethnic Asian journalist who is working in China. Oh, that's all fascinating. And I particularly like your anecdote about being able to reach in the metro cars. Um, We're going to talk about what's happening domestically in China in more depth um, a bit later. But first, seeing as you're in Taiwan, I wonder if we start there. Episode four looks a bit at Xi's ambitions to take the island by force if necessary and what's behind all the tensions that we saw this summer with the unprecedented war games. I'm really interested to hear how likely you really think a war is and what kind of timescale you think it will happen over and and what, what would it look like? Nobody can rule out the possibility of war. Xi has made it very clear that he's aiming for national rejuvenation by 2049, and bringing Taiwan into the fold is part of reaching that goal, as we cover in the fourth episode. 2049 is also 100 years since the Communist Party established the People's Republic of China. So that's the deadline. That's the big deadline to proclaim that China is great again. Uh, exactly when she will move in this period of time from now until 2049 is not something we can place a good bet on. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden met Xi recently at the G20 summit in Bali, and he came away with the impression that it wasn't imminent. The one wild card, though, is whether whatever is going into Xi's decision-making matrix all of a sudden changes. He's very risk-averse. He's probably not going to do something unless he's absolutely 100% sure of success. But there's no guarantee against acting rashly if, for instance, he fell back into a corner. The disastrous Cultural Revolution, for instance, was Chairman Mao's attempt to reassert authority. In general, there's a lot of fear-mongering going on, lots of interests at play. Politicians who want their governments and leaders to be more hawkish on China. Military officials worried their troops might not be ready for a surprise conflict. The multi-billion dollar defense industry. It's really important to pull back from all of this noise. 
At the end of the day, China will move on Taiwan when it deems necessary. The problem for the rest of us is that we don't have much insight into what it would take for Xi to decide it's time to go. Now, in terms of what a conflict might look like, for a long time, a lot of people would have guessed that China creep was going to be the way to get Taiwan on side. So things like strengthening economic and trade ties, pushing pro-China candidates into political power. These are ways that Beijing could have imposed its will without using force. But China's rhetoric and actions have become more bellicose. I mean, these are words that she says all the time. And this kind of approach could harden the general public stance in Taiwan against the mainland. And that could make this slow creep option completely impossible. So that means China may at some point have no choice but to resort to firepower, which Xi has made very clear that he, he won't hesitate to do that. And how would nations support Taiwan if war really did break out? This is where I think what's happened in Ukraine could be very instructive. What's enough support to act as a deterrence? It's a fine line before you tip into what might be perceived as an escalation. But also every move the U.S. makes gives China a propaganda opportunity to reiterate its lines, to act brashly, even to run crucial military drills, as we saw with Nancy Pelosi's visit in August. She was the highest ranking U.S. official to touch down in Taiwan in 25 years, and China showed its anger by running major military exercises. This is a way to intimidate, but it's also a way to practice. And this last bit is what's important. China's military lacks true combat experience. The Pentagon's top general, Mark Milley, recently said that China moving on Taiwan would be a strategic mistake. I'm paraphrasing him here a bit. He's, you know, obviously war on paper is very different than real war. So are Chinese soldiers really trained to withstand battle? This is why you often hear Xi saying the military should always be prepared to fight. And just one last point, it's just, uh, there's always a question of how much popular support there really would be in China. It's easy to fan the flames of nationalism, but what happens when a nation full of one-child families start seeing their sons coming home in body bags? Yeah, I think those, those are all really good questions. And, and you mentioned Ukraine, and that has been a real, a real test for Xi. I want to bring in Roland here because he's been covering the G20 conference this week. Roland, Xi has made some quite interesting comments this week about the war there. Can you tell us a bit more? Yeah, so um, obviously China is nominally, not formally, but nominally um, quite a close ally of Russia. And since the war has begun, uh, the Chinese have really made a point of of staying on the fence in a way. They've, they've refused to get drawn into Western kind of condemnations of the war, even though, um, you know, clearly the Russian invasion of Ukraine goes fully against China's longstanding position of non-interference in other countries' affairs. Um, they've stayed on the fence. Um, they've, they've resisted getting drawn into um, Western criticism of, of, of Russia. Um, and we've had comments from people like Richard Moore, the head of MI6, who, who said in public, um, I think it was back in June, that um, as far as he was concerned, Chinese diplomats were really going out to bat um, for Russia, providing all the diplomatic cover they needed. But last week, um, in or was it even earlier this week? I'm sorry. Uh, everything has gone by so fast. Um, in Bali at the G20, she made several... I'm um, counting them. One, two, three, four, five, five or six very interesting comments. So the first one is he has this meeting on the first day with Joe Biden, um, a three hour long talk. Um, uh, and during that, she very pointedly reaffirms his belief that nuclear wars 
um, should never be fought and can never be won, which um, sounds to you and me or any sensible person simply like a statement of logic, a, a blunt fact um, that no one would disagree with. Um, in the context of Vladimir Putin making very explicit threats about the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine, that was genuinely seen um, as a shot across the bowels of the Kremlin and also kind of, you know, giving the, the, the Americans something they wanted um, diplomatically. Um, next, he gives his own address to the G20 and he, he condemns the weaponization of food and fuel. Um, again, without using the word Russia, talking about something that Russia has been up to in Ukraine. Um, then he has a meeting with uh, with President Macron of France. Um, and after the meeting, she doesn't say himself but President Macron, who we presume would have had, you know, the Chinese agreement that he's going to speak in public about this, um, says that, you know, together with President Xi of China, um, you know, I call for we call together for um, the respecting of Ukraine's territorial integrity and an end to the war. Another shot across Russia's bows. Um, then there's the final communique, which China must have signed off on, um, which called in the strongest terms for a Russian withdrawal, contem- uh, condemned the uh, Russia's aggression against Ukraine. Um, there was a caveat in there. Um, the caveat was uh, not all member states agreed with this. Um, there were other views um, expressed. But nonetheless, China okayed that text. Um, and then the, the most interesting thing for my money, the, the, the last day... As everyone's packing up, uh, President Macron again gives a press conference um, and he says, yeah, we talked a lot about Ukraine. Um, I think China in the coming months may well emerge as an intermediary to negotiate um, a ceasefire um, and possibly a ceasefire. He was quite specific with the goal of preventing um, a return to high intensity maneuver warfare in February after the anticipated winter lull. Um, So you take all this together. Um, it doesn't amount to a formal renunciation of China's informal alliance with Russia, um, but it, it really does amount to a significant enough shift in Chinese rhetoric for, well, if I was in the Kremlin, I might be, I might be quite anxious, actually. Um, it really does suggest, it suggests Beijing getting, getting somewhat tired um, with this war, a little bit worried about it. Um, and certainly much more willing um, to at least give the West um, some kind of indication, some kind of low-cost indication that China is listening to the West's concerns on that war. Sophia, what do you make of that? How do you think this conflict will change the relationship between China and Russia? Ukraine has definitely put China in a very tough spot on the world stage. There's still a question that remains on just how much she knew beforehand. He met Putin in person just weeks before the invasion when Beijing was hosting the Winter Olympics near the start of this year. So it's not a very good look for Xi to continue to refrain from denouncing Putin, but he's managed to do so for many months. If he were to do that, though, it would be a very public admission that he made the wrong call to align China with Russia. Uh, And as as Roland said, uh, you know, again, at the G20, China pretty much still continued to side with Russia. China is still not calling the invasion a war, China also voted against a UN draft resolution on Ukraine-related compensation. And the other countries that voted alongside that were Cuba, Belarus, Iran, North Korea. That gives you an idea of which side of the equation they want to continue to be on. China keeps saying things like it supports peace and mediation. These are pretty non-incendiary things to say. 
And that's because with all world affairs, what China's really interested in is how this impacts things at home. So if nuclear weapons, for instance, were unleashed, if NATO got involved, if Russia fell apart, that would mean complete chaos for China. If Russia disintegrates, what does that mean for communist regimes like Xi's? China and Russia also share very long borders, so there are security concerns here at play for Beijing. They don't want Russians fleeing into China, just as they don't want North Koreans escaping over this way. So for Xi, these are really very, very hairy questions. But still from his perspective, he really does seem to think that the time has come for a communist China, for similar states. This is their moment. This is his frame of reference. He thinks the West is in serious decline, distracted by soap opera politics and bogged down by alliances, these promises they've made to other countries. So for now, it looks like Xi is still hedging his bets. China's already the dominant player in this relationship with Russia, and she is only going to strengthen his position. Roland, what do you think Putin wants or needs from his relationship with, with Xi? Is, is this an alliance to really be worried about? There's a whole bunch of layers um, to Russia's and Putin's relationship with China um, going back years. I mean, I think I think immediately in the current context, yes, Russia needs an ally. And if you're sitting in Moscow um, in the small bubble of people, if you are one of those three or four or five people around Putin who make the decisions about this war, um, our best guess is that you probably think that um, you're fighting a defensive war against against an expansive and aggressive West. Um, and the war is not just with Russia. You think it's uh, sorry, the war is not just with Ukraine. You think it's it's basically with NATO. It's on the entire Western Front. So, you know, you want you want your Siberia and your eastern border to be secure. So you want Beijing to be friendly for one thing, but you also need um, you need some kind of answer to Western economic sanctions. You're probably hoping um, for a bit more financial support. Um, and, and we have reports unconfirmed that the Russians asked the Chinese for, uh, for arms, ammunition, um, that kind of thing, but were turned down. Um, so a degree of disappointment there. Um, on the other hand, um, the Chinese have delivered, um, you know, going back to Richard Moore's comments from the, the Aspen Security um, Forum in, I think it was June or July, um, and, and you have to remember about Richard Moore, you know, yes, he's the head of MI6. He's Britain's top spy. He's also a career diplomat. You know, he, he's deep into kind of foreign policy stuff. And he was saying from his point of view, um, if you look at the behavior of Chinese diplomats, you know, they are delivering um, what the Russians wanted. They, they are really going out to bat in, in the United Nations, in all kinds of other fora to, to give the Russians diplomatic cover. Um, so Russia getting some of what it wants in terms of support for the war, but not all. Um, I mean, there's bigger picture things as well, right? So, so I think Putin and Xi are definitely on the same page with this idea that we are entering a a post-American world, uh, a world where American dominance is in the decline. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think um, you know, Sophia. I'm sure, correct me on this as I'm wrong, but I, I, I get the impression uh, President Xi is quite convinced this is going to be uh, China's century, um, and you know. Number one, Mr. Putin is quite happy with that because he's been complaining about American dominance, you know, almost since he came to power. Um, and number two, he okay, he's got to think about where is Russia going to be in that world. Well, why not ally ourselves with China? We're natural allies in that sense. That's our common world outlook. Um, neither of us like um, this American-dominated world. And even before the war, so in was it September? I think last year they signed this big, rather vague. Um, 
you know, not too many concrete commitments, but this great big um, declaration of uh, what they call the No Limits Partnership, uh, which is meant to align them. We're, we're together in this, um, and we're going to remake the world together. This post-American world, where you know this, this the time of the West telling us what to do um, is over. So there's a common kind of interest there. Um, but, but, there, but underneath all that, there is an anxiety. Okay, so if you um, if you went to Russia in in the two thousands, kind of kind of any time up to the first invasion of Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea in twenty fourteen, um, you wouldn't find many Russian policymakers really devoting that much time to thinking about China. You know, they they have a very European kind of focused mindset in Moscow. You know, Moscow is this side of the Ural Mountains. Um, I can't remember the proportion, but 70, 80, 90 percent of the vast proportion of Russians live in European Russia. Right. Um, so it's kind of natural. Russia is a is kind of more Western looking, really, than than Eastern looking, despite being such a large country and despite having, you know, this border with China. But but underneath all that, there was always this anxiety. OK, there was this, there, you know, people could see uh, China's economy, you know, galloping at that moment in history with that, you know, that amazing 10% GDP growth, this, this, this demographic explosion. Um, meanwhile, Siberia is being depopulated. Russia is still struggling to emerge from the, um, you know, the post-Soviet downturn um, and the depression. There, there was, you know, you talk to people and it would, it would always come up. It would be kind of down the list, but people would think like, yeah, um, I mean, these Chinese workers working in Siberia, what if they don't go home? You know, what if down the line the Chinese say, well, hold on, we have to protect our people? Um, you know, what if, what, if, what if they just buy Siberia? Um, and, you know, and, and that, that's always backed by these kind of, you hear them in lots of countries, but kind of anxious nationalistic rumors that you don't know if it's true or not. And one of the ones going around Moscow is, oh, did you know? Um, in Chinese high schools, they have these textbooks and they show, they show swathes of Siberia and it's labeled as China. I mean, that tells you what they're up to. Um, and then the conversation, you know, it would kind of fade back and people would talk about, you know, more European, American kind of Western Hemisphere kind of stuff. Um, but that, that, that is a long-term um, underlying anxiety, which was basically parked after 2015. After 2015, um, the Russians kind of forget about that. They talk to the Chinese. They see a potential ally. Um, they've already started their kind of confrontation with the West. There's even in 2015, she and Putin um, come to not she. Sorry, was she, sorry, Sophia. Tell me, was she in power in 2015? I'm not a China guy. <laughs> yes, he was. Fantastic. Okay, right. So is she and Putin? Excuse me. Um, sorry. They so 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 Moscow and Beijing come to this agreement where they say, okay, the Eurasian Economic Union, which is you know Moscow's kind of big vague plan to kind of extend economic and soft power across the former Soviet Union, Eurasia, um, is complementary to and in no way in conflict with the Belt and Road Initiative, um, which is, you know, China's huge program of extending economic and thus soft and political influence. And they decided, OK, formally, they, there's no issue here. Um, and they have this thing called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which was meant to kind of you know, deconflict things in, in in Asia. So they buried the anxiety. They buried the discussion of regional competition for the time being. Um, so in the short answer after all that long talking from me is that um, in the immediate term, I think the Russians look at the Chinese as their best, um, their most important ally um, that isn't perhaps delivering exactly what they want. 
um, but who it's imperative to stay, you know, on good terms with, um, perhaps disappointed by how hard a bargain the Chinese drive um, for this. Um, but in the long term, um, those issues, those issues about, you know, being the owner of Siberia with a much smaller population than the huge superpower next door, um, those are long-term issues which any ruler of Russia is going to come back to and start worrying about at some point. Roland, we saw some interesting developments at G20 in terms of the UK-China relationship as well. One question I think everyone has been asking this week, was Rishi Sunak really slighted by Xi? What do you think? Oh, it's guesswork, isn't it? Um, so so <laughs> they had this meeting lined up um, and it was agreed at the last minute. So it wasn't on either leader's schedule um, going into the meeting. Um, there was, we understand, a lot of lobbying from the British side to try and get a bit of FaceTime with Mr. Xi, um, which is finally, it was arranged for, I think it was going to be 3.30 Wednesday. Um, and then uh, Tuesday night, uh, that missile fell in Poland. Um, there's all, a lot of chaos. And then next thing we know, that meeting has just been scrubbed um, and... The Brits tell us that it was simply a matter of um, clashing diaries, difficult to find for both leaders to find time, something like that. Um, uh, our colleague Ben Riley Smith, our political editor, specifically asked them, OK, which side called it off? And they refused to say. Um, so your guess is good as mine. Um, I, I think it is worth pointing out that this was not in Xi's diary and it wasn't in Sunak's diary. It, it was kind of written in at the last minute. So, you know, if... If something had to give, it wasn't the, the worst kind of diplomatic snub to say, OK, listen, guys, like, we're going to go back to the original plan. We, we can't do this. Um, it would have been much worse if, if you know, if this was a, a long planned meeting um, and, and, and you get stood up. Um, but that tells you something, I think. I'd be interested in, in you know, um, Sophia's view from Beijing or, or from Taipei, I suppose now, Um about that actually and how Britain is viewed because my read would be that it just tells you how kind of low down the pecking order of priorities the United Kingdom is. Um, so it's just the fact that, you know, Rishi Sunak was not one of the leaders who Mr. Xi had agreed to talk to. I mean, Xi's engagement at G20 was quite remarkable. He was working hard and he was meeting his adversaries, you know, three hours sitting down with Joe Biden. Um, you know, and, and the rhetoric coming out of that, given they are basically two geopolitical rivals, um, was about as good as you'd question. expect. I absolutely believe there need not be a new Cold War. We, uh, I've met, met many times with Xi Jinping, and we were candid and clear with one another across the board. And I didn't find him more confrontational or more conciliatory. I found him what he's always been, direct and straightforward. And... Uh, do I think he's willing to compromise on various issues? Yes. He spoke to Anthony Albanese of Australia. Um, massive, massive problems between Australia and, and, and China. Um, uh, Justin Trudeau, I mean, that, that ended with that, <laughs> that remarkable buttonholing um, with Xi, you know, giving Trudeau addressing the down for leaking details at the meeting. But, you know, Canada, Australia... Um, two Western countries China has real problems with at the moment. Um, America, its biggest kind of geopolitical rival. Um, who else? Uh, uh, Georgia Maloney of Italy. He met her, but then, you know, Italy is the, is it the only European Union country or uh, you'll correct me, you know, the first one to, to sign up to the Belt and Road scheme. Um, Britain is none of those things, really. Um, so I can, I'm, I can see 
I can kind of see why if you're, you know, the Chinese president, you're trying to work out your priorities for who you're going to meet and and so on, you know, like Britain isn't necessarily on the list because you had a lot of a lot of stuff to address. Um I think what's more interesting um is that the Brits Rishi Sunak's team really put in a lot of effort as we understand to try and get some face time with Xi. Um and and there is a sense that Britain has decided to Oh, Mr. Sunak has decided to to go some way to to trying to restore the relationship with China. We we had a pivot to China, a pivot away from China. Now there seems to be a kind of semi pivot halfway to China. Um, I'm not sure, um, but I'd be interested in Sophia's view of um, of the Chinese view of Britain. Actually, yeah, let's hear it, Sophia. What did you make of the the Rishi snub or not snub this weekend? And what else did we learn about Xi Jinping and what his third term is going to be like from his performance, his reemergence on the international stage this week? So on the Sunak-Shi meeting, uh, as Roland said, it wasn't on the official schedules. This was something that wasn't planned. The meeting with Biden had been in the works. There had been back-channeling for months. And Sunak is pretty new to the job. So for China's, for, for the Chinese side, they haven't had that much time just yet to suss them out. And they're so risk-averse. Why would they take a meeting unless they know they can figure out a way to make it work for their own purposes? whatever those purposes might be, whatever those means might be. So in a sense, it wasn't really worth doing that. It maybe would have meant taking a leap of faith. And the G20 is not the time to do that. This was clearly Xi's big coming out post-pandemic. Well, not post-pandemic, but, you know, his big one big trip to see all his, uh, all his colleagues now that he's traveling again abroad. So... And the UK relationship right now isn't one that needs any repairing. It's not one that China seems to think needs a lot of time and investment in right now. It's also not one that needs a lot of repairing the way the US uh, relationship is or the Australian and uh, Canadian relations are. These are countries that China has, for the last few years, been engaged with a pretty dirty, nasty diplomatic fight. On the whole, it's a positive sign that she is meeting with so many world leaders. To a certain extent, it seems like China's starting to realize it can't be completely isolated, a total pariah on the world stage, can't be in that position forever going forward. That's definitely the way they've been going with very aggressive diplomacy, including taking people hostage for years at a time as a way to squeeze other governments. We saw it again these last few days. Xi Jinping gave uh, the Canadian leader, Justin Trudeau, a bit of a dressing down. Uh, The two had this off-the-cuff exchange that was caught by the Canadian press. And she, he accused Trudeau of leaking information, saying that it was all leaked to the press. That's not appropriate. That's not what we had. Uh, that's not the, the spirit and way the conversation was conducted. Everything we discussed is then leaked to the paper. That's not appropriate. And that's not all the way the conversation was conducted. <laughs> If there is if there is sincerity on your part, free and open and frank dialogue, and that is what we will continue to have, we will continue to look to work constructively together. But there will be things we will disagree on, and we will have. Trudeau replied, and he said, "Well, we believe in free and open and frank dialogue. That's what we will 
keep doing, basically. I'm paraphrasing a bit what the leaders said. And Trudeau made clear that he wanted to keep working together, but there were going to for sure be areas that they disagree on. And of course, a free and open press and how you engage with the press is a very clear difference between how a country like Canada and a country like China will deal with, uh, with the media. Um, so even though we've seen these sorts of bits and pieces that indicate that China is still going down this fairly sharp path, it looks like they maybe want to try to make relations a little bit better than they have been. But I really caution from saying that this is a reset. I think we are very far from a reset. Meetings are just that. They are just meetings. What's important is that we look at what happens after these meetings. Are these talks really going to lead to anything? Presumably, she, after these meetings, is giving the green light for various actions for his underlings to start moving because he's centralized so much power. Basically, everyone's afraid to act unless he's given his approval. If there's no action, then you have to wonder, are these meetings just for propaganda purposes? Xi Jinping just came out of his coronation after the 20th Party Congress. It looks pretty good for him to be casting around and shaking hands with world leaders right now, a man of the people, a man of the world. It's not a coincidence that he took on his historic third term right before the G20. China would have made this plan with all of these uh, with all of this international travel on the calendar in mind. In general, countries shouldn't really engage just for engagement's sake. But the opposite is probably worse in the long run, to be entirely shut out with China completely isolated from the world. That means there's much less understanding, a lot more speculation, and therefore possibly a much higher chance of miscalculation leading to all-out conflict. That's the thing I think a lot about. Okay, so let's zero in on what's going on in China domestically a bit more. Obviously, the war in Ukraine is just one of the curveballs that's been thrown at Xi in the last few years that have challenged his 30-year plan for a new world order, something we look at in the podcast. There are two other big ones that we didn't manage to get into quite as much. Well, one, zero COVID policy. We did, we definitely did get into. And if anyone wants to listen to what it's like, someone going through Chinese quarantine system, listen to episode two and you will hear it. Um, and the other is the increasingly faltering economy in China. And they're both very interlinked. Sophia, how do you see that playing out in the coming years in terms of how it will challenge Xi and his hold over China? There's a, a big risk of social instability in China with zero COVID. I don't necessarily mean mass protests leading to overthrow of the government. I mean, that is, that's something that is probably very unlikely to happen given the, uh, the extent of surveillance in the country. But we have seen cracks showing People are really fed up with zero COVID. Zero COVID is not going away. It's probably going to get a new name. The government's trying to make it more palatable to the public. They're trying to find some sort of release for the pressure, some little pressure valve that they can open for a little bit. Because people are so upset with these uncertain lockdowns and testing requirements. There is something, at least one story every day, of some major calamity happening because of these restrictions. We're talking three years of this. Everybody has a story about how COVID restrictions have impacted themselves, their family, or a friend. Uh, My friend had a neighbor, my friend in Shanghai. uh, His neighbor suffered a stroke. Eventually, an ambulance came, but authorities made his wife show all his recent COVID tests before they'd bring him into the hospital. And then after that, he was detained by the police for allegedly spreading rumors online. He shared a little bit of his experience of what had happened. Uh, Deaths, miscarriages, starvation. There's so much happening because people aren't allowed out of their homes. Uh, 
what's really interesting about all of this is that it has become clear that economic growth is not the country's number one priority right now. That was always the case before. In the past, keeping GDP going was the number one priority. For decades, that was the guarantee that the Communist Party had with its people. Less liberties in exchange for continued upward mobility. Each generation, you would always know, would be able to live better than the last. That's no longer the case, and the party needs to find legitimacy elsewhere. I mean, the economy, some estimates put it at 1% growth this year. That might be good for some other uh, nations now going through facing down recession, but for China, we're talking about 10 years ago, they were seeing double-digit growth. When she came into power, that's what... The, that's the pace the economy was growing at. So possibly dropping down to 1% or 2% growth, as some estimates have put it, for this year, for 2022. I mean, this is really terrible. So this is where the issue of Taiwan comes in. Because the party needs to find a way to justify its status and power, its continued status and power, it needs to kind of find a distraction in a way for people to focus on. And so fanning this patriotic sentiment over Taiwan helps to do that. Let's talk a bit more about Xi in depth. He was the sort of focus of the podcast. And, and we start. you started the show by saying that he was kind of a black hole for information. You know, there's for the arguably the most powerful man in the world, there is so little that we know about him. And, and part of what the journey that you were going on was trying to find out more from his sort of background to, to what he thinks, to what's driving him. How much closer by the end of the podcast did you feel to getting to understand him as a, as a person and a leader? And what do you feel like you still don't know? In working on this podcast, I read just about everything that's out there and that she has ever published. I had a lot of books, a lot of books with his columns, his speeches, his various writings throughout his career. A lot of it, oh, well, all of it really is pure propaganda. But in that, you can still learn quite a bit. And what I could see was how... Uh, how his ideas had developed over time. A lot of what he's put into place as the head of the party in charge of this country of 1.4 billion people are ideas that he had early on, that he wrote about and talked about as a government official at much lower ranks. Most China watchers, including me, I think would say that we have as good a grasp as possible on what he believes in, his his ideology, his general frame of reference, But there's a lot that we really still don't know. Things that policymakers around the world probably all wish they knew the answers to. How does she make decisions? Who does he trust and listen to? And why does he think the Communist Party is the one to stay in power, to continue to lead this nation down this path, whatever that path might be? On a personal level, there's a speculation that even he, that he actually may have more than one kid. I mean, there's just so much we don't know about him. And If he has more than one kid, that is in violation of China's one-child policy. He's also got a spate of half-siblings. All of these personal details about Xi are pretty much considered state secrets. Nobody's allowed to go anywhere near them. That's a massive red line. And so there are so many, so many things that we still don't know. And these are things that, when it comes to other governments thinking about how to deal with China, how even to communicate with China, how to reach out with them, I mean, these are things that could actually be very helpful. But China has never wanted to reveal that information. One of the things that it was really hard to address in the podcast, although we did try at times to figure out a way to do it, was how ordinary Chinese people feel about Xi. That's because no one would ever go on the record saying what they really thought. And there were a few instances when you did ask people and they give sort of quite roundabout answers. 
I'm curious from your time there, from sort of informal conversations that you have in taxis and restaurants, what do you think that people really think of him? It's a very mixed bag. For the most part, the population is bombarded with propaganda. They get nothing of foreign news. So they generally have a fairly positive view because that's all they're given. That's all they're told. They're told that this is the guy that they're supposed to revere. This is the guy who is responsible for all the good things that come to them in life. But in the last few years, zero COVID has started to really upset people. This is usually where I find where people um, where I find people are more likely to blame the authorities. But what they do actually is blame local authorities. They don't usually trace the line all the way to the top. And this is something that is a, a quirk of China. They've made it, they've done so well in, in insulating Xi in a way from this kind of thing. You know, he swoops in, he lets his underlings deal with the situation and then he'll swoop in and then take the credit. So that means if things go wrong, he has some protection to a certain extent. That said, there's definitely a class of people who are completely fed up who think he's taking the country in the absolute opposite direction it needs to be going in. Some of these people you can bet are pretty senior in government. Some of them are retired officials. Before she came into power, even though China was a one-party state, there was still politicking. There were different factions, different ways that people would come up through the system. So you basically had a team, people in your corner, and these little factions would battle it out. There was... Well, as healthy as much as you can have in a one-party state, some healthy debate about policymaking, about what was going to happen next. But with Xi, that's completely changed. He's used this anti-corruption campaign to completely clean house. Anybody who is even thinking about saying something contrary to him, they don't dare to do that anymore. So those with the means to are starting to leave the country in droves. That means those who don't agree and can go are gone. The remaining population, therefore, is then much more malleable. And in a certain sense, she seems to want it that way, this population that becomes much easier to mold into whatever it is that he wishes, a population that will listen and obey. And there's, in a sense, a certain kind of training that's happening with all this zero COVID restrictions. They say you got to get a test every 24 hours. Guess what? Everybody's getting a test every 24 hours, maybe even less than that. We're talking millions of people. We're talking a country of 1.4 billion. And they are all doing these things that are decreed, that are sent down, and they just do it. Uh, Of course, you know, as as I mentioned earlier, there's there's anger over all of this. But for the most part, people are still obeying. I want to end on, I guess, the biggest question of all. How secure is Xi Jinping in power? How long do you think he can hold on? And is there a risk at this point, because he has centralized power so much, that if he does go, that the Chinese Communist Party crumbles as well. So she, he seems to have managed to get rid of any real opposition and threat to his rule. He's fostered this environment where the stakes are so high that it's really too dangerous to challenge him. He's stacked the top with loyalists, yes-men. Yes-men means he can implement whatever it is that he wishes. It gives him so much power. But the big problem with this is that they're probably going to be a lot less inclined to give him the bad news. That means he could start making decisions based on incomplete or inaccurate information. And that's pretty dangerous territory when we're talking about the world's most powerful man in charge of one of the world's most influential nations. So he has cemented so much power. For now, he seems pretty secure in his throne. But the risk then is that he's put himself and all his men at the top. There's nobody else to blame if it all sours. What if he takes a wrong turn, things start to fall apart. Would that be enough for the public to 
turn against the Communist Party? Nobody knows the answer to that. The other big problem with this is that people under him in government will continue to be afraid to act without his approval. Even academics and policy uh, policy advisors from outside of China, they no longer have the access that they used to. There used to be a lot more informal conversation going, a lot more informal dialogue with diplomats and experts between China and the rest of the world. And in this kind of interaction, there could be a lot more information gleaned about what China was thinking, what kind of questions were being asked, what was discussed behind closed doors. And all of that would help feed our understanding of what was going on. But now, for the first time in quite a long time, it's a pretty blank slate. There's very little information coming out. And it's very unfortunate at this very moment. This is when we need more windows into China. And at this moment, we actually have less and less, less visibility into what's going on in Beijing, what's going on with Xi. It's even more so when journalists are being pressured so much that they have no option like me but to leave for good. And so China really is getting cleaved from the world. And I think this is this is a huge... This is this big hot potato. Who knows what happens after this? Will she be able to keep squeezing to get his way? How to Become a Dictator is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our latest dispatches from our correspondents around the world, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get the first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. As I said at the beginning, this episode started life as a live Twitter space. Why not follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss similar broadcasts, like our daily Ukraine space, Ukraine the Latest. If you enjoyed this series, please consider leaving a review on your preferred podcast app, as it really helps others find the show. How to Become a Dictator has been reported by Sophia Yan, China correspondent for The Telegraph, with additional research by Jenny Pan. For this bonus episode, we were joined by Roland Oliphant, senior foreign correspondent. The producers for this series are me, Venetia Rainey, and Yolaine Goffin. Sound design is by Giles Gear, with original music by Elliot Lampitt. The executive producer is Louisa Wells, and the commissioning editor is Louis Emmanuel. Mm-hmm.